Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Grant Strem, Chairman and CEO of Proton Technologies. Proton Technologies is has a process that can make abundant, clean, affordable hydrogen without emissions. One of the trickiest parts of hydrogen production is keeping the emissions low. Proton does this by keeping the carbon in the ground. I'm excited to talk with Grant today and try to understand what exactly he and Proton are offering here in this energy transition solution. So Grant, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Proton Technologies. Sure, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Joe. As a quick introduction, it's probably worth mentioning, my mom's from Texas, and uh, your wow. voice reminds me of my uncle. And so <laughs> somehow she ended up in Calgary and um, gave birth to me where I, I stayed. I went to the University of Calgary and eventually became a geologist, and I did an engineering master's in reservoir characterization at the University of Calgary as well. And spent about the first 12 years of my career in upstream oil and gas, mostly focused on exploration. So very large regional plays, um, the shale gas exploration boom of 2005-ish. And uh, of course, in Canada, oil sands is something that's hard to avoid as avoid the notice of when you're working the, in the energy business. So that's what I focused on, those, those main aspects, but more from a regional context. Um, although a reservoir characterization masters is something that brings you right down into the detailed flow through the pore space. So I ended up, um, I think with a, a bit of an unusual, um, skill set after doing some reserves evaluation work, uh, that brought me into actually the banking world. I worked for TD securities as a research analyst, uh, building large financial models based on the technical uh, work that I did based on, you know, looking at cores and logs and what is the product productivity potential of various oil sands plays is what I was focused on at that time. One of the projects that I noticed was um, a project where they were injecting air into a heavy oil system. And it would always, um, I knew there was some hydrogen being generated in every single project around the world that's had air injection or oxygen injection but in 2015, one of my old professors showed me a data set from BP. And this data set showed huge plumes of hydrogen being produced by the cyclic injection of oxygen. And when I saw that, I thought, if we can deal with the CO2 and keep it in the ground, then this is a massive clean energy trajectory. So we looked around, hired three different patent lawyers, realized we could patent it, 
and that was sort of the birth of Proton Technologies. So um, since then, we've been trying to demonstrate more and more aspects of our process at greater and greater uh, scale and selling licenses internationally. And we'd like to come get set up in Texas too. We Absolutely. bought a field site in 2017 that uh, had already been producing some amount of hydrogen and we've been incrementally improving how much that it, it makes. Very interesting. So what I heard you saying, and thank you for your introduction, everything that you said is very exciting. What I heard was inject air and produce hydrogen and completely remove the the carbon part of it, which to me then translates to carbon negative hydrogen. I guess the question is, is that kind of what you're saying? And how exactly does this happen? I think the important distinction is remove the nitrogen before you inject it. So air is 80% nitrogen, which is pretty much unreactive and it's expensive to compress. It will pressure up a reservoir, which makes it difficult to make it a zero emissions process. Not impossible, but economically a lot harder challenge. So if the nitrogen gets separated out before the oxygen goes down, it's a lot easier to deal with CO2, which can participate in reactions and turn it into solid carbonate, which is another aspect of our patents. So um, we do that. Some happens naturally at low levels, but we can accelerate that transformation by injecting higher pH wastewater streams. Uh, desalination, uh, brines, or steam boiler blowdown helps with that. And that reaction of forming carbonate also helps to make extra hydrogen. Hmm. Okay. So let's walk through kind of what we're talking about. It sounds like it's already patented, and I think it would be helpful for the audience to to get a little bit of the details on what we're doing, because it's oxygen in, very pure oxygen, interacting, I guess, with the hydrocarbons in the surface, and then you're separating out the carbon from the hydrogen. What, I guess, what's the process there? Is this a, is this, um, is this biology and something, or is this a, a mechanical process? What's going on in the subsurface? Sure. I'll, I'll need a few minutes. It's, it's basically a high temperature chemical reaction, very similar to steam methane reforming, which is how most of the world's hydrogen is made today. The big difference is we don't have to buy natural gas on an ongoing basis because when an oil field is close to being abandoned, usually it still has more than half of its oil still in place. It's just reached an economic limit. There's no way to continue moving oil molecules to a production well bore economically. But there's still a huge amount tied up in the pore space. So uh, unlike oil, gases can move around a lot more easily. So when oxygen is injected into these systems, it can find these um, trapped oil molecules to react with, which act as fuel for making, um, well, first, what, it, what happens is partial oxidation. Uh, the results of that are carbon monoxide and steam. So this is a, a heat-releasing process. It's very energetic. And the carbon monoxide and steam are the input ingredients for water gas shift. That's one of the main reactions that's used around the world for making hydrogen today. And um, so instead of building high temperature piping and vessels, we use every, the, the ground itself, Mother Nature's pressure vessel as our reaction chamber. So under the geological seal, 
um, you know, there's decades of fuel remaining in the pore space, and we can inject this oxygen in order to uh, un unlock all that remaining energy right in the place where, where it already is. So it's a bit of a transformation. You can think of it in that regard from um, fuel, like hydrocarbons, to, well, oc carbon oxides and hydrogen. Uh, and the carbon oxides, ideally, so we, we end up, um, a lot of them get trapped in the reservoir and never make it to surface if there's these high pH wastewater streams going into uh, the bottom water is a plume. And then what does come to surface will be a mixture of a few gases primarily. CO2 will be a component of it. Methane will be a component of it. There will be a few other things in there, but uh, a lot of it will be hydrogen. So hmm. I mentioned uh, oxygen to start with. How do we get the oxygen out of the air and separate it from the nitrogen? So we, we actually will be cooling down the atmosphere, the air, in to about minus 185 Celsius. And I'm sorry, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. But uh, at some point, very, very cold, oxygen's a liquid, but nitrogen is still a gas. And then so you take this pure oxygen, you warm it up, and it flashes back to a gas. And the more you warm it up, the higher it increases in pressure. Uh, this high-pressured pure oxygen, we can actually use a simple technique called the Venturi effect to suck in CO2 and pull it into the subsurface. And the CO2 can be third-party CO2, but definitely includes the CO2 that gets produced with the hydrogen. Uh, one of the things that is helpful to heat exchange with this oxygen is the produced gas stream itself, so that we can liquefy out different components at different temperatures. Uh, CO2, you can have food-grade CO2. Some might find a market. Most of it will probably need to get sucked back into the reservoir and turned into carbonate. Uh, but it also will, there will be some LNG, liquid natural gas produced methane, and some other uh, vessels that have different components. There might be some ethane, propane, a few things like that. So that's the main uh, concept. I guess if I had to mention one more thing, they say, well, doesn't it take a lot of energy to cool air that much? And the answer is yes. You need to divert at each project about 10 or 15% of the produced hydrogen, burn it in a hydrogen turbine or power generator. And then that, that powers the air separation process and everything else at surface. So um, it's, yeah, I guess a, a very elegant solution because you have a, a multi-decade fuel supply uh, for making electricity or ammonia or whatever else is desired uh, for the, the use of the hydrogen. Yeah, this is it's very fascinating to think about because as you're talking, my first thought was, enhanced oil recovery. This is essentially giving a second life to these fields that have gone through their primary oil production or primary gas production. And now everything that's left is what would typically be thought of as, as not being able to be produced. And that's, that's exciting for those existing operators. And that's exciting for kind of everybody who has drilled all of these wells and know there's still 50 60 percent of that original oil in place that we physically can't get to so i guess the so let's stick with these technical details a little bit more that is it sounds conceptually kind of already proven you've got it all figured out you've got several demonstrations going but if is it 
I guess, is it a proven effective technology? Has this been done in the field or are you the first one doing it? Uh, it has been done in the field as early as the 1980s. So for, for more than a century, people have been injecting ox- sorry, air into oil fields for enhanced oil recovery. More than 500 projects around the world. All of them make some amount of hydrogen. Uh, they were always optimized for trying to get the most barrels of oil out. And the hydrogen was largely ignored, usually vented or flared. And, uh, you know, they needed to safely handle it. Uh, this was very popular during World War II in California and Texas. Um, and a lot of the hydrogen codes and standards actually come from a bunch of industrial accidents during, during World War II when everybody was trying to make as much fuel as they could to solve World War II. Um, the hydrogen, um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, one of the aspects for enhanced oil recovery, there's, there's two main ways that it helps and there are two, two different oil field types that it helps in different ways. In our case, we have very high API, sorry, low API oil. So 11 API, it's very viscous. And if you warm it up, it flows better. Uh, it's a type of oil that steam enhanced oil recovery uh, is commonly used in, so SAG-D, CSS, cyclic steam injection, and things like that. And um, this this releases thermal energy in the reservoir, and that helps to improve the viscosity so the oil molecules flow more easily to the, the, to the well bores. But um, other higher API uh, oil fields sometimes are, it's possible to get significantly more recovery by injecting CO2. In our case, we're making CO2 in the reservoir itself. So above a certain pressure, the CO2 can missably move into the oil and swell it up by perhaps 30%. And that adds pressure and sort of gushes more oil towards production well bores. Uh, in both cases, the increased pressure will be a benefit for enhanced oil recovery. And uh, you're right, you can get a lot more leverage and, and miles out of an existing asset where somebody already paid for the wells, paid for the roads, paid for the power lines, the power, you know, pipelines. It's all there. There's a town with service companies. Um, you know, that's better to leverage that for a low cost, quick transition. And because we can make the hydrogen cheaper than natural gas, it opens the, the door to baseload electricity, blending into natural gas pipelines, or taking some of the nitrogen off the backside of the air separation unit some of the uh, exhaust heat from the turbine and some of the hydrogen and mixing those together to get ammonia, which of course is an important fertilizer. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of challenges are associated with this? Because it sounds like you've kind of got most of it figured out. I think the main challenge is education. So I'm happy to be on your podcast because awareness (laughs) is number one. And uh, just sort of understanding, seeing is believing. We give field tours, and most people who come for a, a, come out to our, our asset in Saskatchewan end up as a shareholder or a licensee or something like that. Okay. How many field sites do you have currently operating? Sounds like Saskatchewan, and potentially you've got something going in Texas? We don't yet have something in Texas, but it's, uh, well, we do have, I guess I, I, I won't comment. I can't comment. But uh, we do plan to get set up quite soon in Texas in a, in a meaningful way. Uh, one of the advantages of Texas is that it has an 80 gigawatt uh, unregulated power grid. 
which has some challenges, of course, when, you know, there, there's some significant power price arbitrages in Texas. And then with the Inflation Reduction Act, giving it an additional $3 per kilogram of hydrogen that we produce, it takes about a thousand tons per day to make a gigawatt of electricity. So in a combined cycle turbine. So if we come set up in Texas, uh, even if we made zero on the electricity, because of the Inflation Reduction Act, we'd make a billion dollars per year in tax credits. So on top of whatever commercial terms we have, you know, it's, it's extremely attractive for us to get set up in, in large industrial utility power. Um, and then with all the ports along Texas, exporting ammonia is also interesting, something that we can't do easily from the middle of Saskatchewan. So, yeah, I guess there's a, a lot of very interesting opportunity in that way. And around the world, we have licensees in about 22 countries, I think we're up to. Wow. Yeah, so it sounds like you're you're definitely growing and definitely see the various opportunities. As far as you mentioned the the hydrogen component, but also in that Inflation Reduction Act, there is a lot about about decarbonization, CCS projects, and and one of those ideas with this this production directly from the ground for the hydrogen would be keeping the carbon in the ground. So I guess with the with the carbon accounting associated with this, how low in terms of a carbon or net carbon hydrogen is this? I would we assume you that, could go yeah, ahead. Yeah, if we take if if we have an unlimited supply of low pressure CO2 without any additional mechanical compression for that CO2, we think we can get to just by pulling CO2 into the oxygen stream using the Venturi effect, uh, quite handily to uh, around minus 25 tons of CO2 per ton of hydrogen. So it's not like a low carbon intensity, it's how, how far below zero do you want to go? So if somebody wants to offset their entire portfolio, but doesn't want to make any other changes to their emissions, on a net basis, they can get below zero just by doing an extremely strongly carbon negative project with us. Hmm. Wow. So this is a an opportunity for essentially CCS, or really just the carbon negativity and storing carbon. What other values are there here? I think we've we've kind of touched on the idea of repurposing existing oil fields, EOR, and surely there are other values or other potential revenue streams that are coming from this. Can you talk about any of those or other kind of future site that you see with this? Yeah. So if, for example, a site is doing 10,000 tons a day of oxygen injection, then you can back calculate that there's a very significant amount of nitrogen being produced there. Nitrogen has a value if it's pure, so you can sell it for line purging, pipeline purging, and you know it, it has a value. You can liquefy some of it, ship it out. We don't expect to be able to find a market for all of it, uh, so some of it will just be vented, but certainly we can uh, have an enormous amount of nitrogen uh, available as well. When air separation is happening at that scale, it's also attractive to separate out the noble gases, so um, neon, xenon, krypton, Argon, those ones have a, a big market and they're high, high value commodities. So 
even though they're a small component of air, if you're processing that much air cryogenically, it makes good economic sense to pull those out and, and you know, add them into the their markets. Um, so right there, just on the air separation side, that's, that's essentially what it is. Uh, the nitrogen, if it's set up where there's data centers, you've got all this cold desiccated surplus nitrogen, you can just run it through a data center on its way to the ammonia plant, for example. And that, that way you, you save a lot on fan maintenance and you have, you have maybe minus 180 Celsius nitrogen going in one end and there's no water in it or anything else. So you, the cooling costs and fan maintenance for data centers goes down. Overall cost, I've heard that's only about a 10 or 15% improvement on data center OPEX, but it's still, it's not nothing. Um, then on the produced gas, produced commodities side, I guess you could say, there are, there are lots of things you can do with very cold things and very hot things. Since we're doing cryogenic air separation, uh, we can pre-chill this gas stream. So as we uh, cool the produced gases, different ones will liquefy out or freeze out at different temperatures. Uh, CO2, uh, food grade CO2, of course, has a big agricultural market. So some of that will get sold. Uh, for various uses or methanol production or urea or other things like that. Um, and then you have all the different hydrocarbon gases and, and uh, components. So including the liquid ones. So if you're doing this in an old oil field, some of your wells will be definitely um, surging with a lot more oil than they've seen in a long time. Hmm. So yeah, I guess, you know, on an overall basis, it's great if the air separation unit can pay for itself just through, you know, right now a lot of them are built uh, for ammonia. They vent the oxygen and just take the nitrogen. So potentially that could be one way it pays for itself. And then the oxygen going into the ground can give you enough enhanced oil recovery that independently that can pay for the air separation unit. And if you're making enough hydrogen and sequestering enough CO2 that those can also pay for it, you know, they, and then on top of that, the inflation adjustment uh, tax credits give you $3 a kilogram or a billion dollars a year in the case of a one gigawatt power project, which only costs about a billion dollars or less than a billion to make. And it's giving you a billion in tax credits every year. You know, the, it all stacks up to be a profoundly economic way to make clean energy. Yep, absolutely. And I, I really appreciate the way that you break it down and you can see the value in something that when we're talking about noble gases, I don't I don't know how much there is, but is it parts per million or maybe parts per billion in existing air? Whereas so actually pulling that out, yeah, doesn't seem to make economic sense if you're just doing that as your as your business model. But as you see all of a sudden you have five percent that you have. And you can start seeing all of these different potential revenues. Now you see this whole landscape of, of essentially a diversified portfolio when you're utilizing one existing piece of equipment that is being put in a new area in a new way that others may not have been thinking about until we start talking about energy transition and, and green energy and using hydrogen in, in more ways than we used to. It's very, very exciting. Thanks. Yeah, and probably one I forgot to mention, or another benefit, uh, that a lot of hydrogen, uh, people say, 
you know, different things about different hydrogen pathways. And a lot of, a lot of the time they're focused on blue and green hydrogen, which makes at least ambient temperature hydrogen. And so they say, well, you waste so much energy if you try and liquefy it so you can ship it out by truck to various fuel cell refueling stations. And so, and they're right. If you, if you go from like whatever the ambient temperature is down to liquid hydrogen at minus 252 Celsius, again, sorry, it's Celsius, not Fahrenheit. <laughs> um, it's, it, it is a significant energy cost to do that. But if you can passively heat transfer from that cold oxygen or cold nitrogen, and get the temperature down to maybe one minus 170 or something, then you're looking at uh, a very a relatively modest uh, amount of further chilling and a phase change to get it into a liquid form. So I think that that, that is an underestimated uh, additional benefit to this. And even if you just feed it into a natural gas pipeline like somewhat above the, the liquid temperature of methane, then uh, as it travels, it will warm up and expand and that gives a um, an increase in pressure in the line, so there's less compression if you're if you're blending it into a natural gas power uh, pipeline. So there there are some of these additional benefits that people don't seem to be appreciating yet until they see it at large scale. So I'm here to talk about it, and a very small subset of your listeners will probably go, "Wow, this is mind blowing," and some of them will probably go, "I don't get it," <laughs> so, <laughs> until they see it. But that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for those that are going to say, I don't get it, one thing that they will get, and I think that they care about if they're listening, is going to be the price. So the the U.S. government, the DOE, set this energy earth shot for hydrogen of $1 a kilogram. I know a lot of people have said that they have ways to get to $1 a kilogram, and because that is supposed to be this energy earth shot, it's supposed to be very difficult to get to. And I think right now the average price, in fact, you're going to know the average price for, in general, hydrogen production for green hydrogen and blue hydrogen. So what is that kind of average price right now for the market for blue and green hydrogen? And where do you see proton technologies and your hydrogen production coming in at sure i'll start with blue so that is largely dependent on the price of natural gas so if you're mm -hmm. make, whether it's steam methane reforming autothermal reforming pyrolysis different things uh, that can be done energetically to change natural gas to get the hydrogen out of it um those are all depending on what your price per gigajoule of energy in the resulting hydrogen will definitely be more than the incoming natural gas. So if the goal is baseload electricity, it's definitely more efficient to just burn the natural gas than to try and convert it to hydrogen, then burn it. So um, I don't see any, there is no physical way to, to get hydrogen out of natural gas that's cheaper than the incoming natural gas, uh, especially if you add on equipment and losses and all that, all that stuff. So um, in Texas right now, the natural gas price is quite high. So the hydrogen price is quite high. I would, I would guess, and you know, I would, I'd be surprised to hear anybody's able to buy it for less than $4 a kilogram today in Texas. I think that uh, it's likely higher, but I don't think it would be much lower than that at today's natural mm -hmm. gas price. In uh, green hydrogen, our CFO actually came to us from Fortescue Future Industries. He was working on green hydrogen. 
And he said about two-thirds of the price is the renewable power coming in. So you're constantly, for the life of the entire project, buying electricity. And it's worse if it's intermittent or if you're only making use of your electrolyzers intermittently. So the economics are very challenging. Um, he would suggest probably uh, as a general thing, not specific to his former employer, that 6 to $8 is probably readily doable with today's fairly low-cost renewable powers and, and electrolyzers. He's very concerned about the ability of green to scale up because the largest electrolyzer is about 20 megawatts. Can it be done across 10 years with massive industrial tool-up? Yes. Uh, can they get down to a dollar? Maybe. Like, if you can get super, super cheap renewables, maybe you can. And I actually think that there's, a, there's going to be a point 10 or 15 years out if this massive investment into green hydrogen continues where the price of green will drop below blue. And part of that is because of the challenge of natural gas purchases. And, uh, but ours, we hope to, we expect that if we're funded for a large project today, we can get to the range of 50 cents a kilogram. And that's completely ignoring all of these other revenue streams that green and blue do not have. So if we include all those revenue streams, the price of our hydrogen is totally irrelevant. Uh, we could we could just vent it all and still have a highly profitable business. And you know if we find use for it, great. And collecting the three dollars per kilogram in tax credits is to try and get blue and green sort of on par with natural gas or thereabouts, or you know forecasted carbon taxes and or carbon border adjustments. So for us. Um, I guess, you know, <laughs> you know, pick your revenue streams, add them all up. What is our price of hydrogen? You know, it, it really, it's irrelevant. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really interesting point you make that it, and I, I, I want to dig into this a little bit more if you're, if you're willing to entertain me, because the right now you're essentially saying there there's all these benefits of what you're doing and just by producing the power and by producing the hydrogen you can make money from the tax credits but to your point those tax credits are there to make green hydrogen economic and get the technology to the point where it is it doesn't need those tax credits so I guess along those lines, is there, do you see a path for green hydrogen maybe post-tax credits? Because I think that I, I go back to thinking about 2008 when there was this major influx associated with the recession on green energy. And a lot of those projects ultimately made it their two years of funding and they all closed up shop. There's very few success stories from that time period. And that, to me, is a big concern with this this significant once-in-a-generation, as the DOE puts it, opportunity and funding opportunity to bring more green energy into the mix. But if we don't actually capitalize and make commercial, commercial technologies, then we're not going to make it. And I think it Proton sounds like you're, you're kind of already past that. But what about everybody else? Is this just going to kind of sour everybody's palates for green hydrogen and kind of hurt everybody potentially? Yeah, I think in the long run, it's uh, 
it's a very expensive, uh, it, well, it depends how it's counted. So if, if you look at the fact that, you know, humanity globally, on average, has had sperm count declining 2.6% per, 2 per year. You look at uh, eight or nine million air pollution deaths per year. You look at the, the health care tolls and the lost productivity to chronic illnesses and all this stuff. Mm. You know, if you, if you add all that stuff in, definitely oil and gas is way more expensive than coal. Definitely. There's no question. Uh, ecologically, it's insane what we're doing. And the cost that goes along with it, the unseen cost that's not on the balance sheet or the income statement, that, that is, um, it makes oil and gas ridiculous, truly. And I'm, I'm mm. an oil and gas background uh, geologist from Calgary. Um, green hydrogen, if there was not much lower cost al alternatives like us, uh, well, let, let's just let's just say some of that stuff was accounted for. Green is just obviously yes, do it. Uh, but if you have comparables that are and and other vectors like proton technologies that can get down to a, a small fraction of the cost of green hydrogen, then. Uh, the green projects someday, I think, are going to be, you know, uh, they're going to be recognized as uneconomic. Will this help to supercharge the industrial capacity for niches that do, uh, where it does fit? Like maybe small islands where having a, a big, uh, some renewable power, geothermal or something, and then a big electrolyzer on the island for everybody's vehicles and the, the little fishing boats that are there. Yes, uh, there will be niches where it's always cheaper than bringing in diesel from wherever, um, even without that accounting. But yeah, there's going to be massive improvements in the cost of green. Will it ever be um, directly competitive if we're not counting the environmental costs and the, the public health costs? Probably not. So anyways, I guess long story short, even head-to-head -head with no subsidies, we feel we confident we can beat the price of natural gas uh, by a wide margin, or a wide enough margin, that people will be switching to hydrogen anyways just to save money. And will this accelerate the build-out, the tax credits? Yes. So we weren't looking too seriously at building U.S. projects, but you know, if we, if we do 10 gigawatts, that's $10 billion a year, which would be excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think anybody would scoff at that. Yeah. You mentioned the the health benefits or or things that are not being accounted for associated with oil and gas production, and I guess can we can we talk about that a little bit more? Because I know I I was just at a methane mitigation conference in early December. And that's obviously a big, big discussion, especially with aging oil and gas wells or orphaned wells or end of life fields that should be P&A'd or plugged and abandoned. And, and the, the air pollution and specifically the methane are, are big talking points right now and big concerns. How would something like hydrogen production and what y'all are doing impact that well for example if there's a, an old oil field that we can go back to it would give us an economic incentive to plug off the leaky wells so we don't lose our valuable hydrogen hmm. and so yeah somebody who or a licensee who takes over that field or repurposes it uh, suddenly what was a big problem is now a valuable asset and if you have to abandon a few wells 
uh, along the way. That's just part of the a small, small component of the overall cost. So it suddenly takes um, a bunch of these assets. Some of them are just repurposed, used most of the wells. But the problem ones, you just abandon them in the middle of the field. Uh, this is commonly done in, in steam-assisted gravity drainage projects where an old well will be abandoned casually. Nobody is just, you know, if, if you're building a $300 million development, spending 150 grand to abandon a well, an old well is no big deal. So um, that will start happening more and more frequently and solve problems as we go. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it. you're being you're essentially getting an incentive to shore up that field and make sure that there are no leaky areas that are causing air pollution simply because that that leak is ultimately leaking out your your end product. Exactly. And that's not valuable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very interesting. So one one more question. You've talked about heavy oil is kind of where where a lot of this and where you're cutting your teeth on it. But I I am aware heavy oil is not necessarily the the largest component of oil production in the world. If you look at the Permian Basin, a lot of it is light, sweet, crude. I guess this is a long way to ask, is there any type of specific reservoir that works best or or maybe more importantly, a specific type of reservoir or oil field that would not work for this hydrogen production? You have to have good cap rock, and the cap rock should not be super rich in organic material. Otherwise, that organic material in the rock itself is also fuel. It reacts with pure oxygen. Different grades of oil all react with pure oxygen. If there's organic material above a certain temperature in the presence of high partial pressure of oxygen, all of that organic stuff becomes fuel. So um, whether it's p components of the rock itself, even a few percent TOC, total organic carbon by weight in the rock, can be a meaningful portion of the rock's volume that is fuel, and you're backfilling that pore space that you're creating as you go with carbonate. So it's, it's actually kind of an elegant replacement solution of transforming fuel into carbonate rock. And that is... That's very interesting because, and I guess this is, maybe this is too much detail, but so for something that's an immature field, that's still TOC and still organic carbon, not, not changed to oil, not changed to gas. Is that something where you could effectively use your process and go kind of skip that, that cooking through the oil and gas window and go directly to hydrogen? Exactly, yes. So um, the source rocks themselves are so big that it's hard to even fathom the scale of the potential of this technology. Uh, thousands of years, millions of times more energy than humanity has ever used uh, could be available if you include source rocks as a fuel supply, which they, they count. You could do that. So, wow. Yes. Yeah, that is fascinating. And and one thing I like to highlight in in as many podcasts as I can is that valuable opportunity there. And and what you're talking about right there is essentially even if we're not drilling for oil and gas, the entire oil and gas industry by doing this targeting source rocks and directly converting those into hydrogen, that is that 
that way that these these oil and gas companies converting into hydrogen, converting into green energy companies can still go and produce essentially business as usual products and and use all of their existing skill sets in a way that is that is directly applicable and directly going into their bottom lines similar to the way they do it today well i think that's a good stopping point to switch over into our final questions these are the questions i ask all of my guests that first question being what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend the most interesting book i read in the last year was called the gulag archipelago and it recounts how very slowly and very gradually different freedoms were taken away from the Russian people as they were, um, well, <laughs> gently exterminated at first and then it became uh, completely crazy what, what ended up happening. And of course, there's parallels around the world today. Uh, I think that what's happening in Iran might be a similar situation. And I think it's a, a valuable lesson for people to consider and reading at least a synopsis of that book if not the book itself would be widely valuable i think that's a a very very interesting point you make there and as really as we think about energy and one of those one of those things that most people recommend often is some type of geopolitical book and more importantly well also with that is how energy plays into geopolitics so i think that's a a great recommendation and i will definitely have to add it to my list the the next question is when will we be net zero as a society when i look at the amount of spending that goes into um the war in ukraine uh, what we spent as a society, like you know, what the U.S. spent in Iraq. You know, I look at these very expensive wars through time and, and often think if a, if a portion of that money, trillions of dollars, went towards the rapid build-out of clean hydrogen using the proton method, this could happen pretty quick. And by pretty quick, I mean potentially 20-ish years. Uh, it would need, need a massive proliferation of air separation technology which is uh, possible to do. It just takes some serious commitment and, and uh, it can be done. We'd rather spend the same amount of money on health problems and war and hormonal imbalance issues. And uh, yeah, I just, I just really wish more money would get quickly allocated towards the rapid expansion and proliferation of this technology. So 20 years could be possible. I like that answer. I think that is is a very astute observation that that we're spending all of this money on other things. I'll just put it that way. And and if we would focus focus dollars on specific areas. And I think one thing that somebody pointed out to me this week as we're talking, we mentioned the energy earth shots and there was the moonshot program to get us to the moon. And that was an opportunity for the U.S. to 
essentially build NASA and get manned missions to the moon. And that is that is the kind of human ingenuity and human, I guess, accomplishment that can happen when we set our minds to something and when we put the money forth to do so. And I think that's a, to your point, if we were to set our minds on reaching net zero and start putting the money where our mouth is and and saying we will get there, I think I completely agree. We could get there and we could get there quickly. So now the last question. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just um, echoing you. Please continue. All right. So the last question of these final questions is now you actually get to ask me a question. What do you think um, the amount of adoption will be of hydrogen within the United States across the ten the next ten years in transportation sector? That is a really good question. I think that there. I think that there are are two aspects to this. Right now, there is a lot of EV growth, and in my mind, EV growth or electric vehicle growth is where the majority of government funding is going, and seeing that as being maybe the quickest way to get low carbon transportation adoption. And that's just me kind of hypothesizing that is what the government sees as the the true value. And what they see for hydrogen is the industrial use and potentially electricity generation, not necessarily switching cars to fuel cells and building out a hydrogen transportation infrastructure. So I think the the way to answer that question is when and how will who will start wanting hydrogen vehicles and and I think that I think it's going to be I I would guess it's going to be slower than than other technologies as far as transportation I think it it is taking some time and previous guests on the show have pointed out that there is still a need for regulation in order to increase that mass adoption because then you know it's easy to build and you have a common infrastructure that you can build for and that's still not there yet. So I think that we we have specific steps that need to be taken by the government before all of the clear landmarks are in place that people have to hit before you kind of have that runway for adoption. And because I don't think that the government is prioritizing hydrogen-based transportation, I don't think that the adoption will will take off as maybe as optimistically as others might think. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's uh, 
that was a tricky question because most often that is it, it's a very pointed question, and I most often don't get those. So, so thank you for for uh, putting me on the spot there. And <laughs> nice to return the favor. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, Grant, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you for this last minute change where you're on the phone and we're all going through my mic. It it keeps us on our toes. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? I just think one final statement would be that uh, a reiteration of the concern of air pollution that kills millions of us per year that's a person every few seconds, and that's not the lingering suffering, that's the death globally. And if, if there was a terrorist group that, that was that effective at killing people, we would spend trillions of dollars to stop it. And I think it's weird that we're not talking more about this problem and spending more towards solving it, uh, because it is a solvable problem. So air pollution doesn't get much airtime. CO2 gets a lot. Uh, methane gets a lot but I really wish more of the focus and conversation would go to air pollution. So that's my final thought. Thank you very much. Well, Grant, I think that's a great final thought and I absolutely agree. It is one of those other aspects that we definitely need to think about. Keep in mind the air pollution and how, how our actions and how the energy ecosystem is kind of contributing to the holistic earth biodome everything going on so thank you again for joining me and thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the energy transition solutions podcast if you're enjoying the show share with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of if you want to hear more news and energy related stories we have all sorts of energy related podcasts on oggn You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I do have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to go fill out. The link is in the show notes. Please go fill it out, and if you do, we can send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.